Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. It's the height of summer out here on the east coast of the United States. This is about the time Washington, D.C. shuts down for a bit, which is probably just as well because it's been a busy year and the fall promises to be even busier. It's been just a few months of us putting out FP Live episodes on this feed, and my producers felt it was time to run an Ask Me Anything episode, or an AMA as it's known. Truth be told, I was a little bit queasy about this one, but I ended up having a fun time. Since I'm the one answering questions this week, the real host of this episode is Amelia Lester, our amazing executive editor. She runs our news team, edits our biggest essays, and is one of the best journalists I know. While I'm the one who you will hear most of in this episode, I often felt like I wanted to hear her take much more than my own. Maybe next time. Remember, you can stay abreast of everything we're doing on our website, and that is foreignpolicy.com live. We have some great interviews coming up this fall. But for now, here's Amelia Lester. Hi, Amelia. Hi. You may recognize me from hosting our Reporters Notebook Lives. Um, those are the FP Lives where we bring you insights from our news team. But today I get to turn the tables on our editor-in-chief, Ravi. And I should mention, just as full disclosure, that we aren't just colleagues. We are also old friends uh, dating back to our college days. So I may try and slip in a few personal questions here too. But before that, let's get to some of the topics people have written in about. Okay, there's a lot of serious ground to cover here. Um, So let's start with the greatest war on European soil since World War II, which is, of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And Kathy Long-Holland wants to know about the chances for a negotiated settlement to the war. And relatedly, Tim Hansen asked who is best suited to bring Ukraine and Russia to the table to end this war? Gosh, I like how you started with the toughest question first, Amelia. But, um, you know, I think this has been a really tough question to answer when it comes to negotiated settlement, because I think as with any war, most wars do end with some form of a settlement. And part of the reason why I think um, other countries that have been supporting Ukraine have been so hesitant to suggest that anyone other than Ukraine should lead the charge in sort of deciding when the moment is right. Uh, Part of the reason why that's been so hard is because Ukraine has surprised everyone from day one with uh, the way in which it has fought this war, it has defended itself, it has surprised on the upside through its courage, through the fact that, you know, were you to speak not just to politicians or military people, but average Ukrainians, all of them will say, we're going to fight till the bitter end. And so when you have that kind of a situation where a country is as united as it is, is as determined as it is, it's very hard for outsiders to say, 
you should negotiate because really i think in this case more than in other cases in history uh, or other parts of the world um you really want to let the ukrainians decide for themselves when they feel ready to sit down at the negotiating table and so i think a lot of that then depends on the way in which this war works out i mean as it stands the counteroffensive that ukraine uh, began in the summer i think in june it hasn't gone as well as it was hoped for uh, and you know russia's really bedded in both in terms of the mines that it's strewn all over parts of the territory that it took over the way they've bedded in in terms of their troops just uh, uh sitting there waiting for Ukraine to to move forward and then to be able to shoot back and then their aerial superiority so all of that i think has moved the timeline for for how we're thinking about this this war could last for years and if that's the case one year from now two years from now ukrainians might feel differently about whether they want a negotiated settlement or not as the death toll rises um both sides may see this differently i think one thing that that's clear in this is that putin can't really be trusted um he has broken every other agreement uh that's been made before and he can't afford to lose so if you use that as a starting point i think a lot depends on how the ukrainians feel one or two years from now and what kind of support they get from the west between now and then those are the things that i would look out for but you know putting a percentage sort of chance on 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 whether we'll have a negotiated settlement or not that's a fraught business yeah it is hard right now to see an end to this um in any reasonable way i think um brian late has a fascinating question related to it if putin stopped being president of russia tomorrow what would happen in russia Gosh um so I think the assumption here is that Putin dies right because um to me it's unimaginable that Putin leaves office uh uh through any other means but death because he will engineer whatever way he can uh to stay in power if Putin's not around any number of things could happen uh I think scenario 1 is that his closest advisors the people who've propped him up uh some of the oligarchs the siloviki as we call them the people closest to him who need him or who counted on his support to survive and thrive in Putin's Russia they might want to nominate someone who is a familiar face someone who's safe someone who allows um that sort of system of patronage to continue um that's one scenario another scenario could be that and again so much depends on the timing but if this is a couple of years from now sanctions have really begun to bite uh russia's economy has really suffered um we we've seen in the last few weeks the ruble uh has really declined uh precipitously if all of that continues then it's a different calculus you might have a group of people who were once close to putin who suddenly with him gone they might feel that they want a change they want a different direction if only for their own survival so it's a great question to think through and i wish more policymakers were thinking through what happens in a post putin scenario because that really is the one thing that's very hard for us to examine in terms of possibilities but it is the thing we have to prepare for he's not going to live forever 
Yeah, and I just add to Brian that we've published a few great pieces on this very topic, including um, Anastasia Edel's um, piece that sort of examined what would happen post-Putin and also Lucian Kim as well. So I'd recommend that Brian look those pieces up. One question I had for you, Ravi, related to this is what do you make now of the uh, Progozin's aborted rebellion? Because it's curious to me that he's still alive, that he hasn't disappeared or slipped his mortal coil after all of this. What do you make of that? I know it's so strange, isn't it? I mean, I think when it happened, as it was playing out, I remember all of us were, you know, just texting each other and glued to the TV to to try and figure out where this is headed. And I mean, all of the experts I've spoken to, you've spoken to, it seems like what's the, the consensus or the conventional wisdom that's emerged is that um, the deal that Putin struck with Prigozhin um, through Lukashenko in Belarus, it's almost like a backroom mafia deal. And, and these are, in a sense, the best way to understand them. These are all mafia leaders who uh, have their own constituencies, their own turfs, their own territories, the people that they count on for support. And in a sense, Prigozhin was needed, basically. That's why he survived the Wagner group or whatever Wagner ends up becoming, um, that infrastructure is still very important to Russia. Prigozhin still has his fingers in many different pots. Presumably that's been important to Putin and to Lukashenko as well. Um, So I think, I mean, he's clearly been sidelined. He clearly gambled and he lost. But why he hasn't been killed off yet, I think, is a question that we'll keep asking over the next few months. And we're likely to see some more from him as well. Yeah, one thing that I've been hearing is that the rebellion really was more sort of infighting, an expression of discontent with um, military operations as run by the generals rather than necessarily um, a rebellion against Putin's leadership. And perhaps that also explains why he's been lucky enough to escape to Belarus. But yeah, we will continue tracking that story, I think. Um, Mark O has a question that often comes up in debates about US support for Ukraine. It's about the Biden administration's incrementalism. The White House keeps saying it won't give weapon X or Y to Ukraine, and then months later it does. So he asks, what is the Biden White House afraid of? Is it nuclear war? I feel like Marco has been listening to these FP lives for the last few months because this is a question that that we ask policymakers all the time. Uh, it's it's one that we pushed uh, Colin Carl on, who until recently was uh, the policy chief uh, at DoD. But you know, to put myself in, uh, say, a Colin Carl's shoes or Jake Sullivan's shoes, the National Security Advisor, I think they would say, and they have said that. This is a dynamic conflict, and uh, the administration has had to make decisions based on the here and now. As you know, various parameters change; uh, they've adapted. So, right at the start uh, of the war, for example, there were immense fears that that Putin may just press the nuclear button. And I think the fact that he hasn't, uh, over the course of you know more than five hundred days, um, gives uh, the White House more confidence that if he didn't do it then. He won't do it now. And I think they've also received assurances from India, from China, that if there is a red line in this conflict, and of course, there should have been many, but the real red line for much of the rest of the world is nuclear weapons. So it seems to me that that fear, the fear that Putin could escalate to that point, that fear is a bit diminished. Um, But one other reason behind the Biden administration's incrementalism is just that 
they don't have enough. One reason why they sanctioned the use of cluster bombs, for example, is because even though uh, the United States doesn't use it, it's come in for all this criticism from human rights activists. But part of the reason why the Biden administration sanctioned it is they've been running out of other forms of ammunition that they need to give Ukraine. I mean, stuff like just bullets. Um, and so that's another reason why the Biden administration has struggled with supply uh, and its ability to give Ukraine just about enough that it needs while still holding on to some uh, when it comes to other arenas uh, that America's engaged in. So those would be some of the answers, I think, that the, the Biden administration would point to. But it's not enough to stop the criticism, for sure. Yeah, I might just add that some of that criticism has come from FP's own Stephen Walt, who wrote a um, very widely read piece recently about cluster bombs and what he called the contradictions of liberalism um, regarding the Biden administration's decision to send those to Ukraine. And also Jack Detch, um, an FP reporter, has written a lot about the kind of effects of that incrementalism on Ukraine's ability to successfully plan and implement the use of those weapons and weapons technologies. Um, It sort of resulted in a little bit of a ragtag army because they are never able to really plan ahead as to what they'll have next. Uh, But let's get to China, which is um, a topic area where we have a lot of questions coming in. Adriano Arietti has an interesting structural question. Do we really believe, she asks, that the US can successfully contain China if the administration in power changes every four years? That's such a great question. And I think it's it's such a thought-provoking one. Uh, It's a great thought exercise. Um, Look, I mean, as it stands for now, if there's one thing that Dems and Republicans really agree on, it's it's being tough on China. So on that sense, uh, there's actually a strange consistency in U.S. policy on China um, over the last few years. Um, you know, it, America began to get tougher uh, under President Trump, uh, which was sort of the, the brainchild of a guy called uh, Robert Lighthizer, um, who was the U.S. Trade Secretary. Um, but the Biden administration has pretty much continued a lot of those policies of of being tougher on China. The trade tariffs are still in place. Uh, America's clearly been trying to isolate and contain China for a while. But, you know, on this, the structural question that you ask of whether a short-term sort of power or power that has turnover every four years is less effective than... Um, a leadership that is in power for life, like Xi Jinping is. I think there are pros and cons. So China can have a greater consistency of policymaking over time. There's no doubt about that. And that gives it certain strengths. It gives it certain ability to pull off uh, longer-term visions, especially when it comes to investments, uh, whether it's investments in military, whether it's things that go beyond the quick payoffs, so big infrastructural projects, for example. But if that's the pro, the con uh, is that when China makes a mistake, the checks and balances uh, don't kick in as quickly. So, you know, much of the economic problems that China is now seeing, um, you could argue that uh, a democratic government uh, with enough dissent and enough opposing voices would have made serious arguments against some of China's economic policies, whether it's real estate, uh, whether it's debt related, and that might have adapted uh, some of Beijing's policymaking. So I think it works both ways. Um, I think, you know, one way to think about this is given a choice, most people tend to choose 
uh, moving to countries that um, have democratically elected governments than not. I mean, the United States has far more net uh, incoming immigration than China does. And of course, China's population is uh, about four to five times America's size. So I think, you know, the answer probably lies somewhere in there. And of course, we should note that we are two immigrants to America talking now as well. She also asked another excellent question, which you and I have talked about in the past. It's one of those big questions that feels so obvious and yet has no especially obvious answer, which is that the Cold War stayed cold. Why does US-China competition have to move into an armed conflict phase? It's such a great question. And it doesn't. It doesn't. It, 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 it's sometimes crazy to me that um, communications between the United States and China at the highest levels are as bad as they are right now. Uh, there was an incident uh, in June when a Chinese destroyer cut across uh, an American warship in the Taiwan Straits, and it was really close and really dangerous. Not only should that not have happened, but the fact that there weren't communications between the two sides in the lead up to that or after that is extremely worrying to me. I think we need more voices questioning US lawmakers, but also Chinese lawmakers about some of the rhetoric that we're hearing on either side, the sort of jingoistic, bellicose rhetoric about um, moving into a, an armed conflict phase. No one wants it. There's no need for it, really. Uh, the two sides do have disagreements, but they need each other much more than they don't. I mean, all of that seems obvious. So I would, I mean, it really doesn't need to happen is the answer. Daniel Liu asks, how much does the rest of the world not want the Chinese economy to do poorly? I would say most of the world doesn't want to see it happen. Um, if you look at countries across Asia, across Africa, for example, uh, there was a time uh, 15, 20 years ago where you couldn't say this, but today, almost all of these countries in the global south count China uh, as its top or second or at, at worst, third biggest trading partner. Um, none of these countries want a Chinese precipitous decline. Uh, if you look at the big commodities boom, I mean, Amelia, you grew up in Australia. Much of the Australian boom in the 90s and 2000s was a commodities boom from China's uh, excessive demand for commodities around the world. So mining, for example, to suddenly take that away uh, or to wish for a precipitous Chinese decline uh, is not something that the rest of the world wants to see. Now, there's a flip side to this. If you're India, for example, um, you're looking at some of the multinational business that's leaving China and you're seeing some of that come to India if it's Apple or Microsoft, and you're not resisting that. You want that to happen. Um, but at the same time, you don't want China to do poorly. I, I mean, the word poorly in that question is what struck me. If you're an American policymaker, you want America to grow uh, at par um, with China um, so that the current status quo is maintained at the very least. Uh, other countries don't see it that way. Yeah, I might just add that Rishi Iyengar, who was our tech reporter, wrote um, a piece about Apple's announcement that they would be diversifying their supply chain into Southeast Asia, including Vietnam, um, in the coming years. But I agree that that said, I don't think Vietnam wants the Chinese economy to tank. Philip Ivanov, who is the chief programming officer at the Asia Society, asks, how do you think a slowdown in the Chinese economy, especially if that slowdown accelerates, may affect China's relations with the US and Russia? 
That's a great question, Philip. Um, I think, you know, traditionally China has sort of bided its time uh, to rise economically before it sort of became more expansionist in its foreign policy, uh, before it became more ambitious on the global stage. So one school of thought could be that uh, were China to slow down, were that slowdown to accelerate, that China would then retrench its ambitions because it is historically being used to acting through strength. And when you take that strength away, uh, they'd be less likely to act. They'd go back into biding their time phase. The more worrying perspective, and Hal Brands has written about this in foreign policy, so has Michael Beckley, and that's the perspective that a Chinese decline is dangerous that when you have a country that has predicated its entire political system on you know, very fast economic growth, when you take that away, you get all kinds of social stability. That social instability could lead to someone like Xi Jinping acting out. Um, and what form that acting out takes, whether it's a toxic mix of nationalism that then leads to a, a bad military decision, either in Taiwan or somewhere else, where leaders just get desperate to provide people with big news in the foreign policy realm. That's something that worries, um, I think, Western policymakers uh, immensely, and it's something to watch out for. All the more reason, going back to the previous question, to not hope for a precipitous Chinese decline. I think, you know, the whole world kind of needs China to, to stay the way it is, in a sense. Too fast growth is not great, um, but a rapid slowdown would also not be great. Charles Leung um, asked, what do you think about the China-India relationship in the long run? So these are two countries that have uh, fought wars uh, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, they've begun to skirmish again over the last four or five years. Uh, China has, I think, really taken the lead in the sense that uh, there's this term called salami slicing, where which basically means what you think it means, uh, where a country can kind of take off parcels of land and and sort of co-opt them. And China's done that in India. India refuses to acknowledge publicly that it has lost um, parts of its northeastern border to China. Um, and the reason why India doesn't want to even acknowledge it in public is that were it to acknowledge it, it has to act, and it doesn't want to act. Um, it is the weaker party in this case. So, you know, if you look at uh, the India-China relationship through that lens primarily. Um, India's running scared. China has been making similar moves in other parts, uh, Bhutan, Nepal, for example. It's quite likely that India will look at China's ambitions and just want to wait and watch right now, kind of do what China did over the last 30 years, which is to bide its time and to rise and to hope it can just bury uh, these military differences, the border differences for now. China, on the other hand, I think um, the reason why it begun to take some territory is it just wanted to be in a better position. The question is whether it's willing to stop there, whether it's willing to see that it is now engaged in so many arenas around the world and primarily in competition with the United States, whether it just wants to sit, sit still. So I think the two sides will be tense at each other with each other for many years to come. They're clearly the two biggest powers in Asia. That's not going to change. 3 billion people between them and growing. That really is the relationship to watch, I think, in the 21st century. 
I just wanted to mention two FP lives that people might like to look up here, Charles, in particular, given that you asked that fascinating question. The first was a debate. Has China peaked? It was a debate between Michael Beckley and K.U. Jin. Um, that is worth looking up. And then also the other one that I really liked related to this was when you spoke with Ashley Tellis about whether America is making a bad bet on India. And that's probably another relevant one for Charles to look up as well, because that that did touch on India's relationship with China. Uh, speaking of India, let's move to that topic. We just did an FP Live on the ethnic violence in Manipur. Anish Esteves asks if America has a stand on the situation there. So it does, and it kind of wishes it didn't. Um, America's ambassador to India, Eric Garcetti, uh, he uh you know, publicly said, uh, if you need us, we'll step in uh, or we'll help out, we'll offer to help. And that just generated a really adverse reaction in India. India's in a moment where it just doesn't like to see Western powers or any other countries uh, make any move at all to interfere. It's done this successfully with Kashmir, where it has sort of convinced Western powers to just stay out of it. It's reached the point, I think, where if Western powers want to move policy in India, it's best to do it quietly because saying anything in public tends to have this huge backfire effect in India. And even sort of liberals in India then say that the space for them to push the government is limited. They need to rally around the flag as well. It's a very strange moment. I don't agree with it, um, but that's just where it is. I know you attended some events in Washington, D.C. around the visit of Modi. I'm curious for your take on how Modi and Biden get along and how that personal relationship may have um, inflected the geopolitical one. So Modi is well known for prioritizing personal relationships. Um, there's also sort of the showbiz element of it where he's very good at just like hugging world leaders. He's very touchy-feely, loves to sort of um, use that to good effect and, you know, with one eye on the cameras. He's just a very media savvy politician, uh, Biden less so. Um, uh, by all accounts, the two do have uh, a good working relationship. And you could say that, you know, successive U.S. administrations now have really begun to value India as a partner. So this isn't exclusive to Biden. I mean, even Trump uh, had a pretty good relationship with India, as did Biden, going all the way back, I think, to George W. Bush. You know, with Modi, Biden in particular, I think they've been clear that eyes on the prize, focus on the big deals that we can announce, tech cooperation, defense cooperation. There was a time when India was reluctant to ally too closely with the United States, um, in part because of its uh, non-alignment policy. That, that era is gone now. I think India wants to ally more closely with the United States. And a lot of that has to do with China. I think India realizes the, the global climate has changed. It wants to pick and choose, but it also wants to be very transactional. America's a great uh, transaction friend. One thing that I've learned a lot about from you is asking why it is that you rankle at the Trump-Modi parallel that a lot of media outlets draw. Why do you think that that doesn't make sense? I just think uh, we tend to bucket together strongman leaders because around the world, um, whether it's Bolsonaro, Trump, Erdogan, uh, Duterte, uh, so many of them, and Modi, uh, some add to that list. Um, but it's convenient to bucket them together, but there are very, very big differences between all of them. And so on the Trump-Modi kind of parallel, 
uh, you know, Modi actually uh, is a lifetime politician, unlike Trump. Uh, Trump was born with a silver spoon. Uh, Modi was uh, born quite poor um, in a lower caste as well. Um, so their backgrounds are completely different. Um, you know, Modi is also a much more competent, hands-on administrator uh, than Trump was. Uh, he's he just, you know, runs a very tight ship uh, in government and is much more across policymaking than Trump is. They share many things in common on the downside, uh, and we could get into that. I just think that these comparisons that get made uh, in the media and public, uh, they tend to sort of gloss over the differences, and that's, I think, less helpful uh, than uh, it should be. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine, of course. So sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes, or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Let's move to general U.S. foreign policy then. Joseph Britt asks, can you discuss how foreign policy decisions are made in the Biden administration compared to its recent predecessors? Yeah, that's such a great question. I mean, obviously, there's a huge reliance on policymakers. Uh, Biden actually doesn't uh, talk too much uh, about foreign policy in public. Uh, I mean, of course, he's made several gaffes, uh, for example, on the one China policy. Uh, but it's clear that there's a heavy reliance on policymakers such as uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, who, you know, many will agree is um, the most powerful uh, national security advisor America's had uh, in, in a generation, perhaps. I think one of the interesting ways through which to examine current U.S. foreign policy uh, under the Biden administration is economics. There just seems to me to be a real realization that the American heartland was hollowed out um, through unfettered globalization, through uh, industrialization, urbanization, um, the rise of technology. All of these forces, which America was party to um, through its policies in the 80s and 90s, through sort of free market absolutism, this administration just seems deeply, deeply aware um, of how the American heartland has been hollowed out. And so when they talk about foreign policy for the middle class, they really mean it. You can take a look at the uh, interview I did with Heather Boucher, um, who's on the Council of Economic Advisors. And it's so clear that through her own life story, um, that the the hollowing out of the American base is very important. And so there's this pinning together of industrial policy 
and foreign policy with a progressive agenda, um, which means you know also talking about daycare or elder care or healthcare when you're talking about um, semiconductor fabrication uh, plants, uh, and that sort of approach of looking at the middle class first, I think really animates this administration when it comes to foreign policy in a way that I don't think we've seen in my lifetime uh, in US foreign policy making. Yeah, that was a great conversation about something I've long wondered about. Mehdi Askaria says, isn't the West compromising its own principles of free trade and fairness in the policies that the United States is pursuing in defeating China as a serious challenger to its global hegemony? I mean, the short answer is yes. Um, you know, U.S. policymakers don't like to hear it. But in sort of launching the RA, for example, which I think Europeans have rightly called protectionist, um, that does go against uh, U.S. principles of free trade and fairness. And there's a good reason why many U.S. allies are criticizing America for its industrial policy. Now, Everyone does it. Everyone's doing industrial policy, but it goes against the rules. Um, similarly, America pulling out of the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, for example, which was you know initially designed to keep out China, and now they're desperately trying to get China in without America. Um, a lot of that sort of speaks to a frustration, I think a global frustration with America, where it's becoming increasingly clear that America only wants to be part of clubs um, that it is leading. Um, it doesn't just want to be a member of a club. It has to lead the club for the club to work. And that's a criticism you'll hear from many people who write in foreign policy. And there's merit to it, I think. And I do wish American policymakers engaged with it a bit more and accepted that, um, you know, the the unipolar American moment, American hegemony is not what it was. Um, and that reality on the ground, which other countries can smell, uh, America needs to see it too. Howard French wrote a great recent column um, riffing on this idea, and uh, it was sort of pegged to the the coup in Niger and sort of saying that every time the U.S. looks at an event abroad only through the lens of what it means for its own strategic interests, it kind of misses the broader point and also erodes trust worldwide. So that might be worth looking up. Also, Mehdi, um, I want to mention that our last print issue was very much on this topic. It was it was a debate about whether um, American industrial policy is unfair, what made in America means for the world. And that print issue is up on our website at the moment. And that Adam Posen essay has gotten cited so many times. It's one of the most, I think, the one of the most influential essays we've published this year, which which really makes a strong critique against U.S. industrial policy. Yes. Um, on diplomacy, Mo wants to know whether you think the current UN Security Council permanent members with veto power are still relevant. And this is a very pertinent question, given that everyone's preparing for the UN General Assembly in New York next month. Well, the permanent members are relevant. The US is relevant. You know, Russia is relevant. But part of the problem is the Security Council itself uh, is just absolutely stymied, absolutely jammed up. They can't do anything because of the veto power. I mean, they, they can't sanction Russia properly. They can't reform the institution. Uh, everyone knows that the UN is stymied by too much bureaucracy. It doesn't give enough power to developing countries. The global South is clamoring for a voice. Today, if you were to build an actual United Nations, it would be crazy for India to not have a seat at the top table, um, but it doesn't. Um, so for all of those reasons, um, the UN Security Council is just uh, you know, a group that 
doesn't actually get things done. Uh, much of what they do is politicking and favor making, and it's just not effective. Moving on to another topic that we covered in the most recent print issue, which is AI, um, artificial intelligence. And we we really decided to cover that in a print issue, Ravi, I think, because we knew it was a huge topic. And we also noticed that no one was talking about AI as it related to geopolitics. So that's what we set out to explore in our commissioning for that print issue. So having said that, Mariano asks, do you think new technologies like generative AI and deep fakes will constitute a significant risk for the future of democracy? I think they will. And I think we haven't grappled with it enough. I think if you look at this through the lens of disinformation, and you look at how easy it is now to produce videos that you know, look and sound like a world leader speaking when in fact that person didn't say those words. Now imagine the power of putting out a video that purports to be, uh, say, Zelensky speaking about something um, and it's saying completely the opposite of what he would say and you distribute that video across social media, some people will believe it. And that's incredibly dangerous. Um, and I don't think we've begun to fully grapple with the fact that generative AI uh, and deepfakes, they have the ability to make us um, lose faith in our eyes and our ears because it will fool us. So that worries me immensely. And I just don't know if we have the tools right now to detect when these things are being used, nor do we have the tools to resort to sort of bigger institutions that we have trust in. There are fewer and fewer arbiters of what the truth is. It's easier and easier for us to live in silos and therefore it's easier to exploit those silos. And so all of the things that we've seen over the last 20 years with technology and social media, we know what can go wrong. I feel like AI can superpower uh, all of those things that could go wrong and we are not equipped to deal with it. And Paul Share wrote an essay and in fact spoke to you on FP, FP Live to sort of give some thoughts on how we can begin to think about regulating um, this wild west of AI because it's certainly a topic that we're going to have to keep covering. Um, Lastly, climate change, before we get to some personal questions, climate change, what effect do you see climate change having on future foreign policy? I think it's already having an effect. Um, There's a a great piece up on our site this week um, that, you know, basically looks at whether you can compartmentalize climate uh, as an issue in US foreign policy making with China. Um, and the answer is not really, because even though America wants to be able to uh, hurt China in some respects and yet cooperate on climate change, the Chinese don't see it as such. They they see it as an all or nothing partnership. So if you want climate change talks to go ahead, um, then you have to talk to us on other issues. That's just one current example of climate change having a big impact on foreign policy, where I think the United States is so worried about climate change that it may have to make concessions in other areas, which is a good thing for the world, of course. But I think when when you when you look at smaller countries, much of their advocacy uh, and policymaking is going to be uh, linked to climate change. I mean, I was at COP27 last year in Sharm el-Sheikh, 
And it was just so clear um, that for many countries in the global south now, this is becoming issue number one. Um, but more than that, they're getting together to really push the West to invest in solutions for the global south. And I think that pressure is coming to bear. The West is beginning to release more funds. It's still a, just a drop in an ocean of what's required. But I think as an issue, this is going to be more dominant in the years to come. And that question was from Stacy, by the way. Thank you for that, Stacy. Um, I want to get to a few questions that people had about FP. Um, RYP asks, how much money does FP spend on ground reporting versus analytical reporting? I feel like you can answer all of these questions, Amelia, but, but um, you know, about 70% of what we do is analysis, about 30% is reportage. And of that reporting, uh, we have a terrific team in DC, um, six reporters who, you know, you read them all, I'm sure, but they really give us a macro global sense of what's going on in, in US foreign policy making. So they're on the ground there in DC, but globally we have um, an army of freelance reporters um, who we pick and choose and we work with on specific stories for months at a time. And, uh, you know, that's how we're able to look into stories in different parts of the world. We don't have bureaus abroad, um, but what we rely on most of all is expertise. And that's where sort of the analysis part of FP comes into play. We rely on a lot of professors and policymakers and, and diplomats to write for us and to really bear on their expertise. You know, and this is all part of what FP stands for, which is to give people more than what they're getting uh, in the newspapers. We try to not repeat what you see out there elsewhere. We try to be additive. Yeah, and I just add that I think that it's our emphasis on reporting that really distinguishes FP from journals. We, we do think of ourselves as a magazine. We have lots of accessible points of entry for people. Um, and our reporting is a big part of that. Um, it enables us to sort of pose questions that we want answered and, and try to try to get to the bottom of them. Just last weekend, um, we published a, a report from the woods between Poland and Belarus and what the war in Ukraine has meant for the thousands of people who use that forest as a potential entry point to the EU who are fleeing war in, in places like Syria. So that's not a story that you're really going to find in, in a big newspaper, um, but it's sort of connecting the dots between the migrant crisis, the war in Ukraine, um, and then the geopolitics of, of what's happening in Europe in terms of its immigration debate. Lucita asks, what are the highlights of your time as editor-in-chief? Oh, gosh, so many. Um, FP Live, for sure. It's been such a joy to be able to have uh, a platform where we get to speak to experts and policymakers and leaders around the world. Um, I think really expanding uh, some of our global reporting, um, uh, launching Africa Brief, Latin America Brief, I think has been a real point of pride um, for both of us, Amelia, right? I mean, for us to be able to cover two continents in greater detail with with excellent reporters on the ground uh, in Lagos uh, and in, in Sao Paulo has just been a terrific addition, I think, to FP's work. And then adding columnists that uh, we really value. Uh, you heard Howard French um, mentioned in this conversation earlier, but, you know, he's just such an experienced um, 
correspondent with with a contrarian but deeply thought through point of view i think that us policymakers need to hear people around the world need to hear um so you know, th- those are just some of the things i think that give give me a lot of pride to be able to do uh, as an editor in chief Hassan Rahman Shafat wrote in to ask whether FP has ever faced any issues with any government for publishing news. We have lots. Uh, usually, Amelia, you're the one who's dealing with with all of those uh, incoming requests uh, and complaints from governments. Um, but I'll give you one example of something. Amelia, this was before your time uh, at FP, um, but it was a really uh, fraught moment where, I think this was in 2019, when India and Pakistan, um, they had a border skirmish and there was a resulting dogfight, an aerial dogfight, in which India claimed that it downed uh, a Pakistani F-16 Pakistan claimed that all of its planes were intact. The media on both sides went with their respective government lines. So Indian media reported for days that it downed uh, India downed a Pakistani F-16. Pakistan's media was taking reporters uh, to the border areas and saying, well, nothing, there's nothing here to see. Um, no F-16s were downed. Um, for us sitting in D.C., we looked at this story and something didn't smell right um, because both sides seemed to really be very convincing. Um, so we got a scoop from um, several uh, DOD officials who basically told us through an end user agreement uh, they had uh, on the F-16s, which were sold to Pakistan by the United States, um, that part of the end user agreement is a requirement to for, for the United States to be able to check where these planes are. Um, so the U.S. was able to say uh, that a plane wasn't downed. Um, we ran with that scoop. Uh, and of course, India denied it. And and we were sort of in the news and in the news cycle in India for a hot day or two. Um, we stood our ground, of course, because our sources were robust. Um, but but it was a moment where it was very clear that, you know, not only the Indian government, but also large parts of the Indian media uh, were just completely unwilling to engage with our reporting. Which we stand by. That sounds like an interesting one. Um, We're going to get to the point where I roll up my metaphorical sleeves and ask you a few personal questions. Um, The first one I'm really curious about is what was the moment for you that made you realize you wanted to be a journalist? Take us to that moment. Oh, gosh. Uh, You know, this is the part of the interview I've been dreading the most. I, I think I just always knew Amelia. I mean, I I was a student journalist. I always loved to tell stories. And I think just working backwards from the way my brain works, um, this was also the only thing I could do. Um, so I think as a kid, I, I just... I gamed out what are the things that I'm I'm good at and not good at. And the things I was not good at was a very, very, very long list. And and journalism just seemed like the thing that I could do that I was interested in that would allow me to travel, that would allow me to to read the news and engage with the news, all the stuff that I loved doing. Uh, I just wanted to be a part of it. And I didn't know exactly at the time what form that would take um, when I was in my teens or in my sort of early 20s in college, but I feel like anyone who's known me through that period knew that this is what I would gravitate towards doing in some form. Here we are. Uh, I thought you were going to talk about the fact that we bonded over our mutual love of an Indian children's magazine, which was around in the late 80s and early 90s called Target. That's right. I loved Target. So did you. See, Amelia, this is why 
you always edit anything I write. That is a better answer than I gave you. Um, that's true. Um, most listeners will not know what Target is, but it was an amazing children's magazine in the 80s and 90s in India. Um, it had everything from cartoons, but also like good essays in journalism that, um, yeah, it made me, helped me fall in love with the written word. Well, speaking of the written word, you worked as a TV reporter for years, and the fact that your backdrop is always a 10 out of 10 on Room Raider is testament to that, and mine is jerry-rigged with high chairs. What was it like to transition to a magazine from TV? It was both difficult in some respects and easy in some. I think the uh, the easy bits were uh, the news is the news, a lot of the topics that we cover are topics that I've covered all my life as a journalist. Um, and the team is just a wonderful team that I think, and, and you'll attest to this as well, that's welcoming and there's a great sense of camaraderie and it's very, it's a very good environment where you can easily admit to things that you don't know how to do. And so, you know, I think when I joined FP, um, which is now five plus years ago, um, there were things I could bring to the table and there were things I just didn't know how to do. Um, and I have to say the team was just great in, bringing me up to speed in aspects of magazine making um, and editing, um, you know, long form essays that I wasn't that adept at, um, but was so happy to learn. Um, and I've learned from you as well, Amelia. I mean, you've got, you've had a, a longer, much longer magazine career than I have. And uh, it's just wonderful to have a team that you can grow with together. So we both arrived in the United States um, in September 2001 to go to college here, and somehow we're still here and we've both become American citizens along the way as well. What's What do you make of how the U.S. has changed over the last 20 plus years that you've been here? Wow. I want to put that question right back to you at some point, but America's changed dramatically. I think the polarization in this country is not something that I imagined would happen uh, in 2001. Uh, you know, I think we had begun to see the beginnings of that um, in Congress through Fox News, perhaps. Um, that was also the time of the Iraq war. Um, but people reached across the aisle. Um, the binaries weren't as strong as they seem to be now. I think that level of polarization over the last few years has shocked me. And the bit that has also surprised me the most, I think, um, and I often say the country I understand least in the world is the United States, um, but... I don't think that's true. Do you understand Kazakhstan more? <sighs> no, you're right, again. But America confounds me because we live here, we know some, so much about it, and despite that, it confounds us. Um, you know, how you can have large parts of this country that seem so supportive of a person who was born with a silver spoon, who claims to be fighting for the downtrodden, um, and yet has never lived their lives. I mean, it's parts of America seem to be in this fact-free kind of world that I don't understand. Um, and I feel that other parts of the world just sometimes seem more accessible because, you know, the, the basics make a bit more sense. How would you answer that question? <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that when I came here, um, it, it's it's hard to say. I, I never knew America pre-9-11. And I think yeah. that in, in many ways, you can chart pretty much everything that's happened in the US um, 
to to 9-11 and the aftermath and the reactions to it, um, because in some ways you could say that the rise of Trump is a reaction to a foreign policy establishment in the wake of 9-11 that kept making mistakes, that was really out of touch, that was sending young Americans to wars for no good reason. And so to me, it all, it all kind of stems from that event. Um, but I think that as you have, I've spent some years abroad and come back to the US and what really struck me when I returned, I was, I was out of the country from 2016 to 2019 was the, the sense of division and polarization and animosity that unfortunately now seems to permeate American life, um, which is a bit depressing. So let's move to something a little more fun. What's the book on your Uh-oh. bookshelf? <laughs> it's not too bad. What's the book on your bookshelf that's a guilty pleasure? I'll go first since you're looking at my bookshelf. I love the Beatles, and there's a lot of books about the Beatles behind me, oh, as that's well cool. as George R. R. Martin's um, Game of Thrones. Uh, but you tell me, what's your guilty pleasure books wise? Um, well, actually, on my bedside table right now, I have a book called Meathead, um, which is uh, a how-to on grilling. Um, it's like amazing details and different kinds of meat, and I've sort of been uh, learning a lot uh, about grilling because um, I'm trying to do more of that in the summer, and that's a gift from my father-in-law. But I think that the, you know, one book that's sort of behind me to the left that you you can't really see on the screen um, that that I often do go back to is Naipaul's. V.S. Naipaul's House for Mr. Biswas. It was a very influential book for me. Uh, I read it uh, in my late teens. And I often go back to it because each rereading of it um, kind of adds new layers of understanding. And I just think he he was such an insightful writer when it came to emotions like guilt or shame. And he's often described himself as shipwrecked, uh, you know, the sort of the... the kind of journey that his ancestors made from India to the West Indies and that he made from the West Indies to to England. Um, and, and I think the idea of shipwreck is one that I, I think about a lot. And he's he's been very insightful on that front. So I adore that book as well. It's not technically a guilty pleasure, but I'll allow it for this. Um, finally, I had to ask you a food question. Um, yeah. You've lived all over the world, New York, London, New Delhi, what dish do you seek out to eat in each place? I mean, so this this should definitely be a question for you because um, you have actually written about food and are you know more of a professional in that space than I am. Um, but I'm very, better at eating. Let's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's put it that way. <laughs> so am I. Um, best dishes. Um, New Delhi would be um, the kakori kebabs in Old Delhi. Um, it's sort of this lovely minced kind of lamb or goat meat and it's it's kind of like finely blended with cream and spices and turned into a kebab um uh the way the way some shops in old delhi do it is just bar none um in new york it's probably like a pastrami sandwich uh from where barney greengrass um i do like katz's as well which which is great um uh and and i frequent both um, and what was the other one? London. London. London would be like a posh English breakfast, um, you know, at a Kettner's or something like that. Do you eat the black pudding? Always. I love the black pudding. Okay. Well, I think my stomach is literally rumbling and it's getting p- picked up on the microphone with apologies to the producers. So I think we need to end this here. Apologies too that we couldn't get to everyone's questions today, but we promise to do more of these in the future. Right, Ravi? 
I think we'll have to, otherwise our producers will kill us. Um, phew, I'm just glad we got through it. Amelia, thanks. And thank you, Ravi. But just a quick note before we go, we talked a lot on this episode about the work we do at Foreign Policy, and I hope that made many of our listeners excited to become subscribers. So to make that easier, we're offering a 50% discount code for a short time. Our usual discounts are much, much smaller than that. So now's the time to try us out. Go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and enter promo code FPLIVE. If you sign up for the annual subscription, you'll get 50% off the entire year. And that was me in conversation with our executive editor, Amelia Lester. We were honestly blown away by the sheer number of questions that came in on this one. It's both volume, but also quality. We'll just have to do another one soon. Remember, you can take a look at who we have coming up on our website, and that is foreignpolicy.com slash live. Subscribers can submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. So sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. That is it for this week. I am Ravi Agrawal, and I will see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift 
you want to make it tasteful, you want to make it thoughtful, you thought about the other individual, you thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.